0: This was about as bizarre and as easy
1: as it gets.
0: So the number for me was a number that would allow me to
1: never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top.
0: I went from a sale of you know five
1: hundred thousand dollars to in debt one hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Okay, so what are the numbers on your company's dashboard? My guess is you look at your company's revenue and profitability, which are two great metrics to track. But there are another eight key drivers of the value of your company that go well beyond just revenue and profitability that are the things that acquirers want to know about. Going and getting your Value Builder score will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. takes about 15 minutes to do. Go to valuebuilder.com to get your score. Hey, guys. Next up is George Bandarian, who sold AMI to File Keepers in February two thousand. 18 lots of interesting information here and in particular i love what george did to get his business ready to sell. You'll hear about how he structured his time, the way he built his management team, the dashboard, his rhythm. He also did a number of things to build his company's value, in particular focusing on recurring revenue and his NPS or Net Promoter Score. Uh, When it comes to the actual deal, some really good negotiation tactics that George follows, creating deal heat, which he'll explain to you, Uh, the idea of of getting multiple buyers to the table. um, Putting a number on his business, he believes helped him to sort of create a high watermark for what it was worth in his eyes. And his adjustments, the way he went through to express his profitability of what it would appear in their hands if they were to buy the business, was a key part in getting what he felt was a fair value for his business. Here to tell you the rest of the story is George Bandarian. <music> George Bandarian. Welcome to Built to Sell Radio.
0: Thank you, John. Pleasure to be here.
1: Yeah, it's great to have you here as well. So, AMI, tell me about what you guys did. I understand that, that you transitioned this business from your father. Was it 18 or so years ago that you took it over?
0: Yes. Yes. If we want to go back in time, uh, my father founded it. He, he passed when I was just a little baby. My mother took it over. She did great uh, with it. And then I Kind of graduated USC and I took it over. At that time, we were facing technological obsolescence. It was a microfilm company.
1: Yeah. So, So, for folks who don't know what that is, like, help us understand what did you guys do, like, in layman's terms?
0: Sure. So, at that time, um, it was microfilming services, which is gone now. Um, But what, by the time I sold it, earlier this year, basically what we were was a digital transformation um, provider. What that means is we helped uh, big companies that had lots of paper and manual processes be able to um, eliminate the paper by scanning it and automate those manual paper, PDF, email type of processes into a digital workflow system. So we were kind of like a full service provider. We offered both the software, both on-premise and in the cloud. As well as um, the document scanning and outsourcing uh, services in our BPO business process outsourcing center in, in Los Angeles.
1: So I can remember in the old days, you know, an invoice would come in to our company, and like the 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 bookkeeper, the office manager would open up the envelope. Uh, you know, they would they would give it to the person who purchase that product. That person would like initial it, say, yes, I, you know, this is what I ordered. And then it would go to somebody else to approve. And eventually like a check would get cut. So yeah, that was like the was old
0: over $10,000. It would have to come to you for approval. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. and the meanwhile, the invoice is late and the vendor is calling and yes, exactly. So that, ha- that. you guys automated that process. Completely.
1: Got it. And so, you did you build? I was looking on your website earlier, this kind of laser fish software. Did you build that or did you license that software from somebody else?
0: Um, we were one of their top partners worldwide. We were like Winner's Circle, 14 years running. Um, they have over 35,000
1: customers worldwide, and we were one of their top partners. So, you're, you're, you're uh using that platform. And then how did you bill your customers? What was the relationship there? Were you building them by the project or ongoing? Like how did you structure your billing with your clients?
0: Sure. So um, you know, when when we talk about and, and I'll kind of uh, refer to the, the value builder system a little bit, um when we talk about monopoly control and and differentiating, so so part of what made us different was Um, We were a full service provider. So our typical um, or our ideal customer would be a client that said, look, you know, we have the vision. We want to get there. um, We need your help to do that. And so that might include um, software uh, purchase plus maintenance if it was on premise or it might be a cloud license. There was going to be professional and consulting services to implement uh, the whole system, including the workflows. Um, there might be some scanners involved if we're providing them scanners, and then there was the whole scanning services project. So there was both one-time and recurring uh, components. So it might it might have been a a hundred to two hundred fifty thousand dollars sale um, with both one-time and recurring components for the different products and services.
1: And this is fascinating. So uh, I'm curious to know, um, in terms of your relationship with your clients, did did they did they realize that you were essentially reselling Laserfiche? Did they think of you as the owner or creator of Laserfiche, the software, or or were they were they knowledgeable that you were essentially I don't know maybe reselling or integrating? Maybe is a better word integrating that other person's software. Were they, like how were the customers aware? I guess.
0: Uh, yes. Yeah, I I think it was, it's like your traditional VAR model where, you know, if you have a Microsoft reseller or, you know, SAP reseller, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's disclosed and the customers, you know, well aware that, you know, they make the software and then there's a whole distribution channel that that are the ones that implement and support the software.
1: Yeah, one of the things that we talk about in Value Builder is this idea of the Switzerland structure and and not being overly dependent on a single supplier. So I'd be curious in your case, how did you, I mean, obviously Laserfiche was a key supplier to you. You were the gold circle winner, whatever. How did you ensure that you weren't overly dependent on them as a supplier? I mean, could you swap them out with another vendor or like, how did you sort of think through that piece?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So, so we did have a uh, a backup, um, not a close second, a far second, but we had a second that we had, you know, a handful, maybe about a dozen clients with, and we sold that in in the instances. And part of having them and keeping up with them was for that Switzerland structure reason to make sure that if something happened, if they got acquired, if they came out with some crazy policy that just, you know, affected our business that, you know, we would, uh, it wouldn't hurt us.
1: It sounds like you were, you were kind of building to sell along the way. Like this was something, you know, the cultivation of the secondary supplier was done very thoughtfully. Were you building I all the way to sell or, or was there a triggering event that made you kind of want to sell?
0: Um, No, I I think I I think I'm a I'm a built to sell kind of guy. Um, I um, there was a triggering event in the end, which we can talk about. But there was a number of things that I did to to kind of build it um, to sell. Um, um, I mean, it started off with learning. And, you know, I I obviously read your book and I I went to see a lot of speakers that had exited. Um, I kept in touch with three um of our industry m and a bankers each year to get a pulse on the m and a activity valuations and trends. I got my value builder score with you guys and and kind of got to work on that. Um, so so that was the the start of it. And then um I did things like um, you know, with uh, Vern Harnish's kind of one page strategic plan, that was helpful to really think about. You know who are we what's our mission and vision and and culture and values and 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 you know i went from being a skeptic on culture and values to having that be one of our uh, greatest accomplishments you know we built such a strong uh family culture we even applied to like you know la's best places to work and i think that was big in terms of retention and recruiting um and then like specific things, uh, like we talk about in Value Builder, the hub and spoke. Um, I call it becoming worthless. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's my spin on it. Uh, because if you're worth less to your business, your business is worth more. What What um, did you
1: do to, to like, what can you just give us some specific tactics that you 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 followed to become less dependent for your business to become less dependent on you personally. Like one, for sure. example, I heard the other day where where somebody alphabetizes on you know the on the like our people uh, section of your website instead of what everybody does, which is start with the president at the top. Um, so this guy started alphabetizing employees, right? So like the administrative assistant, if their name was like Jane Appleby, for example, she would be the first person. Uh, on the list, so that was one thing that he did to to make their business less dependent on it. Well, like, what did you do?
0: Sure, um, I mean <clears throat> the first thing was you know I needed to create a management team. Uh, and again, I'll, I reference Vern again, Vern Harnish, uh, author of Rockefeller Habits and Scaling Up. Um, that was um, his concepts I implemented along with um, Traction's the book Traction's concepts. But basically I I built a management team, you know, Vern says there's every company, regardless of what company it is, has three uh, departments, you know, sales and marketing, operations slash manufacturing and admin. Um, And so so I had, um, I was able to build up a strong team over the years of three people overseeing each of those three areas. And then I just continued to scale back. So, you know, when we were in the exit process, um, at our twenty seventeen annual summit, um, I announced that I was going back to two days a week. And you know, two of the people really liked that idea because it meant less George. One, you know, one of the management team members was a little freaked out by it. But, you know, I just kept uh, empowering them and and supporting them and coaching them and 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 trying to remove myself more and more from the process. and and ultimately, that paid off because, It was one of the reasons why the buyer didn't need me and I was able to negotiate not needing to stay on um, essentially at all after the sale, which,
1: you know, we can talk about a little later. So you had a management team. So someone in charge of, let me just write it down, someone in charge of sales and marketing, someone in charge of manufacturing. And And in our case, operations, yep. Ops. And then what was the third? admin. Okay. Now, you know, the other model I've seen is where you bring in sort of a chief operating officer, president, day-to-day, you know, to IC, where, you know, your management team would report to them and that person, the COO would report to you. Did you consider that structure at all?
0: Um, I, I thought about that. As a matter of fact, the, um, the executive we had uh, heading up sales I felt, um, could step into that role. So if if we were to continue growing and if I was going to hang on to it, I, I think that could have been a transition. Um, but at, at where we were at, that was kind of the right fit was, uh, me at the top and, you know, three people owning each of those areas and the four of us working, um, together, you know, I, I implemented the kind of a a KPI dashboard system. So, you know, every week looking at all of our key KPIs, you know, we have the rhythm, you know, from our, you know, annual to monthly to weekly to the daily huddles and and all that. So, you know, I think with the four of us, it made a good team and and it it made it so that there was the systems uh, in place and people that once I was out of the picture, they could just plug into
1: the buyer's um, company and things would keep running. I'd love to get more on this management team because I think a lot of listeners, especially listeners of smaller companies, you know, uh, a million in revenue, 2 million in revenue, 3 million in revenue, might hear you say management team and might say, oh, forget it. You know, I don't have enough revenue to support a bunch of really expensive talent. So I'd just be curious you know whether you uh, whether or not you can share probably probably can't share salaries but could you just give us a sense um, like how senior were these people like were their compensations largely salary or did they have kind of variable comp like how did you like if someone said to you george like there's no way I could hire a management team what would you do to allay that concern of theirs
0: yeah that, that's a, that's actually a great question because i i was in that camp earlier in my career where i always thought management meant you know Big salary and just like this super experienced seasoned person and and just you know how am I ever gonna get a management team going? Um, What what I learned was you know just looking at our current team you know you always have you know your A B and C players you know the C players you need to get rid of the B's you want to see coach them and try to turn them into A's and the A players are generally the ones that you're going to be able to promote and and they're just going to be able to take on more and more responsibility, deliver more results and you're happy to pay them more both in terms of salary and bonuses. So, um, you know, I think everybody kind of started off that way, um, and, and kind of promoted and, and took on more and more. And, and that's, I think that's probably what I would recommend for smaller companies is, is, is look internally, and, and find those, you know, you know who your superstars are, just don't don't keep them stagnant. Um, talk to them, coach them, um, treat them right and give, you know, ask them if they want more and, and help them with their career. And, and usually they'll respond. I mean, if they're a superstar, they're waiting for
1: you to talk to them. Got it. So some, I'm just summarizing here some of the things that you did to make AMI less dependent on you personally. I've got you went down to two days a week. You brought in a management team and empowered them to, to kind of run the business largely day to day. You created a KPI dashboard. You instituted sort of a meeting rhythm. Is there anything else you did to make it, you know, to de the business? <laughs>
0: Um, no, th- those are the main things in terms of de georgifying it. <laughs> um there's other things I did to to build value, but
1: um, yeah, I think that kind of covers it. All right, let's get into building value. So what did you do um to build value? like like uh, before I ask you that, why was that important to you? What, did had you started to think about an exit and that you wanted to maximize value leading up to an exit? Was that the sort of rationale?
0: Yes. Yes. I mean, I, I, I knew that, um, in my mind, I, I I guess the way I felt was that was the ultimate, um, the pinnacle. And so I wasn't sure when it was going to happen, but that's always what I was kind of, um, going for.
1: And so what did you think AMI was worth at the time that you started to build value? What was your calculus on that?
0: Uh, not much <laughs> why <laughs> well i mean you know we we had you know we had our profitability wasn't great our our cash flow we had cash flow issues um you know it was if you look at it in one way it was a commoditized market you know um there's lots of document management software there's lots of scanning companies um, so there's a lot of things that um, our reoccurring revenues weren't that high that, that was one area of emphasis. Um, as we talk about in, in kind of the value builder, module five, we, I was able to, to increase recurring revenues and package and bundle more offerings so that, you know, customers found more value in paying more on the annual, um, we started measuring our
1: NPS. And, um, NPS stands for net promoter score for those listeners who aren't familiar with that acronym, uh, Fred Reichelt developed a methodology for, for measuring customer satisfaction, which is linked and correlated to company growth. So what was your NPS when you started, George, and what did you get it up to?
0: I don't remember what it was when we started. Um, we, 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 when we established our values at, um, and you know, the values kind of morphed and, and got clearer over time, but one of the things that got clear and became, the, the fundamental number one value was client delight. Um, actually delight was the value. So it meant client delight, employee delight, um, partner delight. So, and, and that's the number one thing we used. So, you know, if there was a, a question, you know, this thing happened on this project, what should we do? You know, we first ran it through the delight filter before, like, you know, the profit filter and other things like that. Um, so I think focusing on delighting our clients, um, as well as our employees. Um, you know, and then when we measured the NPS, by the time it was done, when, when, when we put it in the deal book at, at that time, when I was already talking to buyers, we were up at 76, you know, which wow. is right there with like Nordstrom and Costco. That's and, incredible. Yeah. You know,
1: Anything yeah. north of fifteen percent is considered above average. Anything better than fifty percent is considered world class. So to be at seventy six, that's incredible. So what else did you do to build the value of AMI leading up to an exit? So clearly you focus on delight, uh, customer delight, and employee delight. Uh, what other sorts of things did you do to to build up the value?
0: Um the the other thing was with um. Differentiating and you know um, fig- combining those two services in a way that was valuable for the clients. Usually in our industry, there's there's either the document management resellers or the scanning companies. Although more and more, you know, e- each has brought on the other services, but but we touted as kind of the full service provider, um, and and we did it in ways that was still different than others. did you brand that, George? Like, did you come
1: up with a name for it? Let's see. Did we brand that?
0: Um, I think, I don't know if we branded it. Um, I think we would call it like our full service digital transformation solutions, something like that, that was still different. Um, Yeah. So I think that's as far as we went with it.
1: Got it. Got it. And so what triggered you to want to sell AMI?
0: Um, yeah, so that's interesting. I I think that I had all the, um, I had all the business reasons. I had all the personal reasons. Um, you know, what I mean by that is from a business standpoint, you know, it was, it was competitive. The M and a activity had heated up, um, you know, from a personal, I was just burnt out, you know, I kind of lost passion. And the meanwhile, I had my first, um, kid. Uh, GB3, George Van the <laughs> third, so, you know, that kind of that father instinct had kicked in. And I, I could see motivated. his license
1: plate in 18 years, GB3.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love it. Uh, the father instinct that kicked in, um, you know, I, I wanted to be in software. Like I, I didn't want to be the middleman, the reseller. I wanted to be a software developer. Um, I Either that or I, I knew like I'm really passionate about breakthroughs and transformations. I'd been like a big Tony Robbins guy, uh, growing up. Um, you know, I, I mentioned in the beginning, my, my father passed when I was a baby. So, you know, there was some remnants from that. I think there was some, some, I'm not good enough that really developed and was shaping my life that I had to work really hard in terms of self-development to correct. And so I felt like I, you know, I really liked participating in and, and providing, uh, massive transformations and breakthroughs for other people. So I just kind of felt like after over a decade of helping companies go paperless and automate their workflows that, you know, I had a greater calling in life. You know, there, there was more that I was meant to do than what I was doing today. Um, But I, I was still, and every time I would go try something, um, you know it, it was like, I would go get distracted, and then ami's cash flow would you know have an issue. and then m- me and or other people would slap me on the wrist and say, "Get back to work, George. That's stop chasing shiny objects." And at the time, it sounded like that was the right insight. But what I realized now was that was wrong. It, it, that was actually my my me uh, pursuing my true callings. And, um, or at least going in the direction, going away from what I needed to go away from and going towards something new. Um, but, you know, ultimately I was still kind of competitive trying to build and, and, and get to this, um, high watermark. Um, and, and I think ultimately to answer your question, you know, what, what did it for me was acceptance. You know, I, I, I was like, okay, if I just spend another year um, or so and kind of finish out building value, you know, if I can find a good strategic buyer, sell it in, you know, uh, in a good um, transaction, you know, good price in terms. um, That's a huge win. And I could, I could take that money. I could take all the lessons learned, my relationships, my contact, I could take some time off. I could heal. You know, I was dealing with stress, chronic stress and inflammation um you know i was always red my skin my face was always inflamed and red you know i was like you know i could heal and i could get clarity on exactly what i'm meant to do why why i was put on this planet and and then i could pursue that and so you know it doesn't have to be you know it doesn't have to be a two dollar exit you know maybe a one dollar exit is 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 okay um just as an example so so I think it was acceptance, you know, and and once that happened, um that that completely changed everything and and I have to thank you in part John because as I was kind of going through this journey, I I listened to um, all of your episodes, I think from one to 122 was the 22, <laughs> you the, get the, the, like the listener of, of the year
1: award, uh, for sure.
0: <laughs> get your gold yeah. star.
1: So, okay. So yeah, you had to, go ahead. I just,
0: yeah, I, just to finish that thought, I, I heard it on, on a number of the episodes where when it's time, you, you just know. So, you know, I, I think I, I felt like it was time. I got clear. I accepted it. I said, let's just make this as good as we can. Like, let's put a year or so, let's make it as good as we can, and then move on to the next thing. And that's exactly what
1: happened love it love it we talk about push and pull factors right so push factors would be things that are pushing you out of your business the competition's heating up uh, the m a market is getting more attractive um, cash flows is a frustration and then pull market pull would be factors that are pulling you to something else right so you want to do something that's a higher calling you want to you know do something that you're more excited about passionate about et etc and what we found is that the most the happiest exits and I would count you obviously as one of these are are exits where there's at least as many pull factors as there are push factors. There's something that you're going to as opposed to just something that you're kind of shying away from. So that's, I mean, it sounds like a, a great exit in, in your case. So let's walk through that right now. The, so you decide that it's time to sell. What did you do next? I mean, did you hire an advisor? Did you, did you work with someone um, to get ready to go to market? Like what was the next step?
0: Sure. Um, so, so things really kicked off when, um, I emailed the buyer, uh, the, the company that ended up becoming the buyer. I emailed my contact there. We, we were already strategic partners. We, we offered each other com- complimentary services. You know, we were scanning and document management. They were record
1: storage and records destruction. This is file. Um, this is file keepers. The, the ultimate acquirer, right? Correct and Correct. so File Keepers um, is like like I'd be familiar with Iron Mountain where they where they take your box of documents and I'll store them for you. Is that sort of similar to what File Keepers does?
0: That's exactly that's exactly it. Um, Iron Mountain and a lot of their other competitors in that market had began to offer digital offerings, but um, File Keepers didn't quite have that at the time, and so that's why I thought that there could be a good strategic fit. And so, you know, I emailed my contact, one of the, the management team members, and I said, hey, you know, you guys made that other acquisition. Um, are you guys done or are you guys still looking to make any more? And his response was, yes, we're aggressively looking for, but, you know, we can't quite find anything. Let me know if you hear of anything. And then I said, yeah, confidentially, I'm, I'm, I'm entertaining various options right now from different people for AMI. And I, I wasn't at that time. <laughs> um, but I wanted to start it off with deal heat right from the beginning. Love it. Um, yeah. And and that kind of kicked it off. Um, you know, from there I, I quickly added two others into the mix, um, so that there was, you know, a, a true process. Um, I, you know, I believe in having a process, um, uh, they, those other two, um, dropped out, um, for various reasons how did you get Um, them
1: interested what what did you do in their in those cases to get them sort of at the table
0: um one of them was a recent uh laserfish partner and they're a large kind of global company and so i figured you know this is this would be a drop in the bucket for them to buy me if 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 this big company has signed up with laserfish and wants to you know make a big impact with their thousands of reps worldwide you know we would be a strategic fit for them and they would immediately get um credibility references clients employees as opposed to trying to build it from the beginning so that was my angle with that company and then with the other one, um, they had contacted me. So I started talking to them, but but it wasn't really a fit. They were more a scanning company. They they, they were not looking for the other part. And, and that's one of the things that I ran into is, um, you know, um, actually all three dropped out by the end of the year. This is in 2016. And so I was kind of left with nothing. I had to re- reload. So then I, I added different competitors um, in Q1, of twenty seventeen and And what happened was you know competitors were interested in one or the other, like either our scanning part or our laser fish part, um, and not both. And so that was proving to be a challenge. Um, um, so i so I really needed to find the right company that was going to value both. and And filekeepers from the beginning um, met that criteria. Um, so I was able to re-engage with them, um I think
1: uh, at the end of q one. Why did and, they drop and, out in the first place, george? what was what happened?
0: I, I think it was a combination of it it was like a little early in their process, and I pushed hard, and I set a
1: little too high of a number. <laughs> mm, okay, that's interesting. So did you put a number in front of them to begin?
0: I did. I did. I I think like I said, you know, Hey, you know, I I don't see this going any lower than X. Um, and, uh, it was a pretty high ball number. What was your Um, revenue at the time? The
1: revenue at the time was when we grew it to around about 2 million. Got it. And so what did you say? What was the X? Like what, how much did you say it was worth in your mind to, to file keepers?
0: Um, it was, uh, Without going into a lot of the details, um, you know, I said it was worth, um, it was a number that was substantially over our like one times revenue.
1: Okay. So you're looking for, you know, multiples of top line revenue. Oh, maybe it's, uh, or, or it would be. Um, could you talk about multiples of EBITDA? Like, were you also thinking in terms of like, you wanted to get X multiple of EBITDA?
0: The the way I was positioning it was uh, a multiple of recurring revenue. So um, the number I put was, um, you know, I think it was something like maybe two times recurring revenue, which isn't out of bounds um, for a recurring revenue business.
1: So now he came to, to, so you offered that, like give me the context of how that number came up. So did the guy from FileKeeper say, George, what do you want for it, or did you offer it up spontaneously? Like, how did that number sort of come up?
0: I think what I found was that that the way that their types of companies uh, do valuations, I was trying to fit it within uh, the valuation system that they're used to. Um, and so um, um, and then also, you know, I was just trying to get the best deal for myself, right? So um, I I didn't have the feeling that they were going to come in with like this phenomenally high offer to begin with. So I you know I I, I know there's conflicting um, you know two camps on that. Um, and you know I, I I decided to go with the strategy of setting the high bar from the beginning. Yeah. Um, I, I think in the end it it helped me because they knew from the outset like what was on my mind and they had to work to bring me down in a way. Yep. Um, and so
1: whereas if I hadn't done that, it would have been harder to take them up. If yeah. Yeah. It's like pricing. Um, Pricing theory, you know, if you start with an anchoring number like, you know, this is going to cost you, and you see this all the time in infomercials, <laughs> it's going to cost you whatever a hundred dollars. And today, it's I'm making it sound way cheesier than it is, but today it's yours for just two payments of twenty nine ninety nine. Like you start with the anchoring number, which gets them um, sort of focused on that, and then obviously uh, coming down from there. Uh, obviously, the ups the other side of the coin is letting them make the first move, and, and I think you're right. I think it's a bit split in terms of which is the best strategy and you chose a course and stuck to it which is great so you got them how did you get them re-engaged back in q1 of 2016
0: so this is one of the good things about being strategic partners already so you know we we were i I scheduled the call to talk about kind of current you know business you know around some client project and ask about this that and the other and at the end i i strategically brought up um the acquisition and and whether that was a done deal and and found out that no, I mean it was in their strategic plans, and it was something that they were wanted to address this year, and 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 try to see if it would work, and and so that's
1: when it kind of heated up, um, yeah. And then where did it go from there? Did they make a counteroffer, or what was the next step? So so from there,
0: we got we ended up getting three offers. Uh, we got an offer from them and two others. Um, they um their offer was obviously the best one, um, in every aspect, um, because the others were not a strategic buyer like them. Um, so they were valuing the whole pie and the fact that they were getting both the scanning as well as the document management business. say, Say you're referring to file keepers. Correct. Okay. Um, and you know, they just, everything was like a perfect fit. Um, so so we signed the LOI, I think in July 2017, we went into diligence um, and then the um, the deal closed in February of this year in 2018.
1: And so can you talk at all about the multiple, I know we can't get into the actual sale price, but can we talk at all about the multiple of earnings or or revenue that you ultimately agreed to multiple of revenue, obviously probably not, but would would you be able to give us uh, listeners a sense of the multiple of earnings
0: yeah, and I think there that there's a a good kind of lesson in this um so 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 what helped me was um like I said, they were a strategic buyer they um, but but they had an acquisition philosophy that was around. Um, getting a three-year payback. So that was, you know, essentially means, you know, 3x EBITDA. And so that was becoming a problem um so you know but you know i built a really strong relationship with um with them you know i had great rapport with with my main contact on their side um to the point where you know it was joked by their management team that we had a bromance going <laughs> <laughs> you know we were just talking all the time and texting and all that and and what we did was you know we we worked on the that ebitda and we did it collaboratively and honestly and transparently mm-hmm where knowing that we didn't have a deal because my number was higher um, and and their number was lower. We, we worked on on what that EBITDA was so that if they needed a three year payback, you know, making sure that they were counting everything properly. So, you know, so, so they share their file with me. I asked to see it. And we were, I was able to point out a number of things that should be added back. And so, you know, we did multiple kind of rounds of that file, um, and and I think that um, in the end, um, you know, they got their three-year uh, EBITDA. Uh, but maybe for me, if I looked at it, if they weren't the buyer, if I if I just did an independent valuation, that it made it probably would be much more than that it might be more like a 5 or 6 times EBITDA love it love um,
1: it this is such an important topic and i want to make sure my listeners are along for the ride here so this is this is critical so as entrepreneurs we always talk about well you know i got 3 times earnings or i got 5 times earnings etc so there's two numbers that that drive that valuation right there's there's the multiple which we all tend to focus on to, maybe to our detriment and then there's what it's multiplying and we assume that that profit is just profit. It's what the accountant told us is that, that our profit is, and of course that's not always true, as George is mentioning, there's a process of adjustments or addbacks, as a business broker would refer to it, where you're making adjustments to to characterize the profitability of the company. In the hands of the buyer, so you're trying to figure out like what's the profitability under normalized circumstances. So if George is paying himself some enormous salary, and you wouldn't need to hire someone as expensive to run that business day to day, or you maybe you wouldn't even need a George. It doesn't sound like he did. Um, then you would you would pull you could pull that out and and show a an adjusted EBITDA uh, to help them understand what the business would, would, would turn off in the way, throw off in the way of profits if they owned it. And that sounds like the process you went through with them, George, is that right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and I mean, just to, just to maybe try to drive that point home with an example. So, so using, using your example with, with George, let's just say if, if uh, a replacement salary, um, if we were doing an evaluation and and they were going to put a rep- replacement salary, we, you know, hey, if George is gone, we need another CEO or president, and let's just say that salary is going to be, I'm just going to make a number up, 150,000. Um, well, that would have been in there, that would have reduced the EBITDA by 150,000. But because my management team was just gonna plug right in, my whole team was gonna plug right into their existing structure, in their numbers, they didn't need to put that in there. They didn't need to account for that. And so let's just say if you take that number of 150,000 and then multiply it by their number of three times EBITDA, which, you know, in the end, that, that did adjust a little bit. We got that a little higher. But let's just say, take three times that you're already at $450,000 of value that got created right there.
1: What other adjustments did you ask them to make, or what other adjustments did you make to, to get them up to that? Uh, that the return on investment was there for them?
0: Well, I mean, I think a big one was rent. Um, they were going to eliminate our office and consume it into their space. You know, they're a record storage company. So they own a lot of warehouses and they have plenty of space in their headquarters and, and in their record storage. And, and then just all the things that was duplicative, like um, different admin costs, different tool costs, like sales and marketing tools. So, you know, we I, we just... I went through our whole PL and all of our expenses and, and every single line item, anything that wasn't going to be needed, we added that back and they asked me to, you know, put comments and notes next to each one to make sure that, you know, they understood um, why and that they believed it and they could validate it. And, and we did that. Um, and, and ultimately, I think that's what really led it to get to a point of, of being a, a win-win where, Um, you know, day, day one with the deal, um, I actually call it a win, win, win day one, Um, I won, but also my, you know, and my employees won, um, there, you know, we, we were a small business. So things were always tight. Um, we did the best we could with our employees, but you know, they're a larger company, um, better pay, better benefits, packages, more vacation. So like day one, our employees went there and they just got a complete upgrade in, in their whole package. So, you know, they ended up retaining all of our employees. Um, all of our
1: customers came through. Um, so it just worked out perfectly. So many lessons in this story, George, I'd be curious to know kind of, what are you doing now? Um, tell me about sort of, uh, life after the exit. What, what are you focused on?
0: Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. I mean, you know, I think, um, one of the things we didn't talk about was, uh, I had an X factor in all this. Uh, I had a, I had a exit advisor. He was a EO 4 mate of mine, one of my best friends. And, you know, he's kind of a, a deal guy. Um, and he helped me every step of the way. Um, he, you know, he coached me, he, he, he helped me with strategy with, you know, I, I hadn't done any of these things before. I, I didn't know uh, what each step of the exit process was. I didn't know how to, you know, create a deal book or do due diligence or, you know, what, you know, and all of that, he was there uh, with me. And, you know, just it had such a profound impact on me that that now I've decided to pay it forward, um, and as you know, I've become a, a value builder advisor with you guys. And
1: it's like it's like remember the old Remington? Was it Victor Kiyam with a Remington like razor? First, I was a customer, <laughs> and now I'm like uh, I own the company or whatever. You're you're like the perfect <laughs> example of that. You were a you were a, a value builder user. You were a, a business owner going through the process, and now you've chosen to. Uh, Uh, to, to, to use the system, which is fantastic. And, 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 and cool that you developed your own sort of methodology in the exit to impact. Maybe talk a little bit about that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I started um, giving talks and then I started helping other EOers and other friends and entrepreneurs and, and, and I started getting a lot of enjoyment out of it. And, and so that kind of turned into this brand, called Exit to Impact, you know, I think of it more as a movement where, you know, we're partnering with entrepreneurs as their exit advisor, We're, we're building value so that they could sell at the best possible price and terms to achieve the financial freedom and the wealth they desire, but more importantly, to be able to pursue their greater
1: calling in life. George, I'd love to know just just before we wrap, what's the best way for people to reach out? Is there a website they can go to to learn more or a a phone number? Like, What's what's the best place for people to reach out to you?
0: Sure. Sure. So what I did to make it as easy as possible just this week to honor you and, and your listeners, I created a gift. I took kind of all the top strategies, a lot of the ones that we touched on, but, but another handful that we didn't get to, there's over 25 of them. And I created this, uh, little ebook called the ultimate business exit checklist. And I mean, there's a lot of value in it. I I didn't hold anything back. Um, normally I could probably sell something like that, but I want to, you know, give it as a gift free to your listeners. Um, my way of giving back again, you know, this podcast was so instrumental in my exit. So they could download it at exitchecklist.com. Again, really simple exitchecklist.com. There's other goodies there too. Um, And again, I'm just, you know, I'm getting a lot of energy and fulfillment from it. If anybody wants to reach out to me directly, um, you could still go there. You know, you'll get an email from me with the checklist and you could just reply back and say, Hey man, I want to talk to you.
1: George Medarian, thanks for joining us. Thank you.